Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Let's read together. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? Now, Lord, open our hearts that we may hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching today. Give me utterance to proclaim truth boldly, clearly. Help me to say only those things that would be pleasing to you and to just be quiet about those things that would not be pleasing to you. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. And I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you, asking especially for sons and daughters who have wandered from the faith that you will draw them back to you. Don't let one of them be lost, O oh Lord. Thank you for hearing our prayer. I pray these things today in the only name that matters, the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In the annals of recorded history, there has never been a day before or since like the day that is the setting for the message today. To be sure, it didn't start out to be anything unusual. In fact, it began in quite an ordinary fashion. Ever since the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, the Jews had been counting 50 days after Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then assembling once again to celebrate the Feast of Weeks called Shavuot, what we know as Pentecost. At this festival, they celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. At this festival, they celebrated the giving and receiving of the Torah. None of them, however, were prepared for the celebration that was to erupt on this day. Just 10 days earlier, 500 of the disciples of Jesus had walked with him to the Mount of Olives. His final instruction was for them to return to the city of Jerusalem and wait until they received the promise of the Father that he would send to them. Right in the middle of their conversation, 
he began to ascend into heaven. As they were intently gazing at him rising into the sky, two angelic beings clothed in white garments appeared and said in chapter 1, verse 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way you have watched him go into heaven. Well, with hearts filled with wonder and joy, they made their way back to Jerusalem. There they waited, and they waited, and they waited some more. They conducted a business meeting to elect Matthias to fill the place of Judas as a member of the apostolic leadership. Still, they waited. Let me just pause long enough to drop something in on you right here. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is wait. When it comes to receiving the things of God, too many times we're in too big of a hurry. You know, we live in a culture that doesn't understand the value of waiting. We live for the right now, the immediate. Everything, it seems, is on a hurry-up schedule. In the church, we've sometimes forgotten that God isn't a computer operator. You don't press all the right buttons, hit enter, and outspits the right idea or the right answer. No, God is a farmer. He works in seasons. There is seed time and harvest. There's a rhythm to the way God operates. See, some of you, God has laid out a blessing for you, but you missed it because you were so impatient, you just ran right by it. These 120 followers of Jesus were in the upper room. And they waited. For 10 days, they waited. They waited until the day of Pentecost had fully come. And finally, their waiting was rewarded. The Bible says that everything changed suddenly. Just about the time you think you've settled down, and the way it is, is the way it's always going to be. Just about the time you've given up on anything being any different, suddenly. Suddenly, this day is like no other day in all of history. See, just when the disciples were beginning to lose heart, suddenly. Just when they were beginning to lose hope, suddenly. See, that's just like God. Just when you're convinced nothing's going to change, suddenly. Just when you're out of options, suddenly. Just when you're out of resources, suddenly. God never moves according to your timetable, but he's always on time. He never works according to your agenda, but he always accomplishes his purpose. With him, it's always when the day has fully come. With him, it's always in the fullness of time. See, you thought it should have happened a month ago, but suddenly. You thought it was going to be last week, but Suddenly, you thought he had forgotten about you until suddenly. You thought he had abandoned you, then suddenly. You thought it was time to give up, but suddenly. I just want to stop long enough to say to somebody that will have ears to hear right now that it's too soon for you to give up because God has a suddenly with your name on it. When they were least expecting it, 
there suddenly came a sound from heaven like a violent rushing wind that filled the house. Tongues of fire appeared over the heads of each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Filled with the Holy Spirit, they ran out into the street. In Jerusalem, there were Jews from every nation known to man that were gathered for the observance of the feast, and they were amazed and astonished when they heard simple Galileans speaking foreign languages they had never studied or learned. Now, they weren't just speaking simple phrases, but they were using highly technical, expansive vocabulary, declaring in lofty terms the greatness of Almighty God. Being amazed and perplexed, the people started asking one another, what does this mean? This is the same question that's being asked today when people witness the demonstration and the manifestation of the Spirit. (laughs) What does this mean? Some of the people of that day did just what people do today when they don't understand something. They began making fun of it, mocking it. They began trying to find a rational explanation for it. They tried to equate it with something with which they were familiar. And the closest thing they could come up with, well, these men are drunk. I'd just really like to go off on a rabbit trail right there, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refrain from that. I'm just, you have no idea the kind of restraint I'm exercising right now. <laughs> well, just when it looked like it was going to be utter confusion, Peter stood up in their midst, raised his voice, and began to tell them the meaning of this miraculous phenomenon. What does this mean? I'll tell you what this means. This doesn't, he says, this doesn't have anything to do with being intoxicated. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning, and the bars aren't even open yet. <laughs> if you want to know what this means, he says, first of all, it means the completion of prophecy. Beginning in verse 16, Peter took them through the Old Testament, and he said, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit isn't some modern phenomenon. It isn't something that was dreamed up by a bunch of emotional misfits. It isn't something that was concocted in a back room by a group of radicals trying to create a new doctrine. This is something that has been in the heart of God from the very beginning. This is what he was talking about when he spoke through the prophet in Isaiah 41 or 44 and 3. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. This is the meaning of Isaiah 59 and 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring nor from the mouths of your offspring's offspring, says the Lord, from now and forever. This is the meaning of Zechariah 12 and 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. This is what John the baptizer was talking about in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than 
eye and I am not fit to remove his sandals, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When Peter quoted the prophecy of Joel, he recognized that the prophet was speaking during a dark time in the history of the people of God. The land was barren and wasted. A devastating foe had come against the land and the people. It was a time of weeping. It was a time of alarm. It was a time of fasting. It was a time of famine. But right in the midst of terrible destruction, the Lord promised deliverance. He promised victory over the enemy. He promised restoration of joy. He promised a return of everything that had been lost. He promised that his people would be vindicated. He promised that there would be both the early and the latter rain. He promised that threshing floors would be full of grain and vats would overflow with new wine and oil. He promised that he would make up for the years that had been taken away by the swarming locust and the creeping locust and the stripping locust and the gnawing locust. He promised that the people of God would be able to hold their heads up and never be put to shame again. And then he promised the outpouring of the Spirit on all humanity. He said sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Young men will see visions. And Peter proclaimed this is that. What you're seeing is the completion of prophecy. God has honored his word. God has fulfilled his plan. This is the age of the Spirit in which we are living right now. It's part of the eternal purpose of God for the people of this world in this generation it's the completion of prophecy not only that but then Peter says if you want to know what this means it means the confirmation of proof in John 14 16 Jesus promised his father promised his followers I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever in John 16 and 7 he told his disciples it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you in verse 33 Peter preached therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the witness that Jesus has indeed ascended to the right hand of the Father. The way you can know Jesus has accomplished his work on earth and is now fulfilling his high priestly role is because the Holy Spirit has come. See, as long as Jesus was on the earth, the Holy Spirit could not operate in fullness of power. But now that Jesus has ascended, he has sent the Holy Spirit. The manifestation of the Spirit is confirmation of proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be and he has done what he said he would do. What does this mean? It's a completion of prophecy. It's a confirmation of proof. Then Peter says it's a connection of power. In verse 32 he said, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. See, of all the benefits and blessings of the Spirit-filled life, perhaps none is as significant as this idea of power. It is through the Spirit that you are connected to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It is the Spirit who, first of all, gives the power to be who He calls you to be. See, whether you want to admit it or not, each and every one of us is in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle, and it's a strange kind of warfare. It isn't a conflict against a tangible enemy that you can reach out and touch. You're fighting and struggling against the corruption of the world that is trying to deter you from the plan of God. This spiritual battle, the Bible teaches us, is an internal battle. 
That's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7, verses 22 through 24, when he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? It's an internal battle, but it's also a spiritual battle. That's why 2 Corinthians 10 and 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The battle is internal, it's spiritual, it's also an invisible battle. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Bible also says this battle is a fight of faith. That's why 1 Timothy 6 and 12 gives this instruction. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This battle is also a battle of lifestyle. Which lifestyle you're going to choose and which values you're going to live by. Are you going to live by the flesh or are you going to live by the spirit? Are you going to judge the word by your feelings or are you going to judge your feelings by the word? That's what it means in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says to his son in the Lord, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. I want to tell you, this is the struggle you're in today. It's an internal battle, it's a spiritual battle, it's an invisible battle, it's a faith battle, it's a lifestyle battle. And in the midst of this battle, your spiritual enemy is trying his best to get control of your life. Now listen, the way he operates is he is a duplicator. See, he tries to copy every good thing that God has with a cheap imitation. He is a deceiver. He tries to deceive you into believing an error and a lie. He tries to deceive you into following the duplication of good things that really have an evil intent. He's also a defeater. He wants to get you into a state of defeat where you no longer see any purpose for living, where you no longer see any reason for being, where you have no meaning to life and everything is empty and everywhere you turn you see no hope. And this is where the coming of the Holy Spirit rises up as a connection of power. When he is given control of your life, then you are the one who is enabled to defeat everything that the devil has to offer. God has given a spiritual strategy to overcome the evil one. The Holy Spirit has been given so that you can understand this spiritual strategy. This strategy is outlined in Ephesians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul writes in that chapter that you're going to have to learn to live by the spirit that is within you. In verses 10 and 11, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Then he says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Then in verses 13 and 14, he says to stand your ground and having done all you know to do, just stand. Some of you need to hear that today. You've done everything you know to do. You've prayed every prayer you know to pray. You've cried every tear you know to cry. You've done everything you've, you've talked. You've done everything you know to do. God says you're just going to have to stand. Some of you need to stand still and recognize that God is at work when you can't see him. You stand clothed in the armor of God. 
that armor is spiritual armor. It's generated by the Spirit of God. He says, put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith so that you can withstand the fiery darts of the wicked one. He says, put on the helmet of salvation. I just want to stop long enough to say that some of you, the best thing you could ever do for your life would just be to get some saved brains. Put on the helmet of salvation. Get your brain saved. Get your thinking, your stinking thinking corrected and get it lined up with the word of God. Some saved brains. And take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. When you've done that, then you have to realize that none of it has any meaning for you unless it has an energizing force. Unless that armor is energized and given life and power by the Holy Spirit, it has no meaning in your life. That's why verse 18 of Ephesians 6 says that the way you live the, your life today, the way you handle anything that Satan has to bring, the way you handle your negative circumstances and all the problems of life and business and everything else that comes to you, the way you do that is you learn to pray in the Spirit. But you don't pray just any kind of prayer. You don't pray meaningless words and vain repetitions. You pray on all occasions with all kinds of requests and petitions. With this in mind, you are alert. And you continually pray for the saints under the intercessory work of the Spirit. Because when you pray in the Spirit, power is generated. And then you live out your life as an overcomer. L listen, if you want to solve that problem of sin that keeps plaguing you, if you want to solve that problem of sickness if you want to solve that business problem, if you want to solve that family problem, if you want to solve that relationship problem, if you want to solve that personal problem, then you need to be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of power. You will find the solution to the adversities and negatives of life as you learn to walk in the power of the Spirit of the living God. Somebody needs to get a handle on the truth of Isaiah 10, 27, that it is the anointing that breaks the yoke. You've got some yokes on you, well, the anointing of the Holy Spirit will break that yoke off of you and set you free. You need to come to that place of full trust and confidence in Zechariah 4 and 6, that it is not by might nor by power, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. If you're going to be the person God has designed and called you to be, you need to make the connection of power with the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, then you begin to walk in the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Oh, you didn't hear what I just said. If you'd have really heard it, I'd have gotten a bigger amen than that. You walk in the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. I feel like I've been preaching a, a, about 90 mile an hour in a 45 mile an hour speed zone. That's what happens when I don't get to preach for, in, in my pulpit for two weeks, you know. Just... Not only does this connection of power give you the power to be what he has called and designed for you to be, but it also gives you the power to do what he calls you to do. Let me tell you, the purpose of the fullness of the Spirit isn't just so there is a demonstration of supernatural signs it isn't just for your personal blessing and edification. The purpose of the connection of power is so you can be effective in service for the kingdom of God. 
See, Jesus said, you shall receive power and you shall be my witnesses. The tongues of fire that set over the heads of those 120 believers in the upper room were an indicator of the fire that was ignited in their hearts. That fire manifested itself not just in an ability to speak in other tongues, but in a blaze of enthusiasm and zeal and energy for the work of the kingdom that all the might and power of Rome could not extinguish. Let me let you in on something. When God saves you, it isn't just to keep you out of hell. He saves you to function in the family of God. He saves you to fill a role. He saves you for divine purpose. The way you're going to be enabled and equipped to effectively do the job to which he's called you to do is to be filled with the Spirit. Jesus told the disciples, you're going to be my witnesses, but don't even begin until you're filled with the Spirit. Don't even try to do the work of the kingdom without the anointing of the Spirit. One of the biggest reasons churches aren't any more effective is because they keep trying to do the work of God according to the ways of man. And it never works. We keep trying to witness with our charismatic and winsome personalities. We keep trying to pray according to our personal desires. We keep trying to build with our innovative programs. The bottom line is that if it's the work of the kingdom of God, then it must be carried out in the power of the Spirit. If the Spirit isn't present, then it's nothing but works of the flesh that aren't going to stand the test of God's purifying fire. Being being filled with the Spirit isn't some kind of spiritual brownie button. The Spirit isn't given so you can walk around with your chest puffed out saying, look how spiritual I am. The Holy Spirit is given because God has a job for you to do in his kingdom. And the only way you're going to effectively do that job is if you do it in the power of the Spirit. So what does this mean? Well, it's a completion of prophecy. It's a confirmation of proof. It's a connection of power. Finally, I want you to see it's a continuation of promise. Peter came to the end of this message and he said in verses 38 and 39, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's the proper order. Some people are trying to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit without the repentance part. It doesn't work that way. The repentance precedes the gifting of the Holy Spirit. And then he went on and he said, watch this. For this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. This is where I believe the Lord wants to bring us to in this service today. It's a place where we recognize that this promise isn't just for 120 believers in an upper room. It isn't just for the first century church. Oh, and by the way, it's not just for the pastors and the elders either. And there's no place in the Bible that gives any justification for believing that the gifts and the fullness of the Spirit has ceased. But this promise is for you. It's extended to anyone and everyone, whosoever will. The promise of power is for you. The help you need is right here. The the promise is for you. You See, it doesn't do any good to hear the story and then just leave it tucked in the pages of the Bible. Doesn't mean anything 
If all you do is rehearse the events as an exciting episode of history. It doesn't mean anything at all until you take it off the page and apply it to your life. The promise of Holy Spirit baptism is for you. Why don't you just look at somebody and say, the Holy Spirit is for you. Just, just. He's talking to you today. The Holy Spirit is for you. Over the last couple of weeks, the Lord's been dealing with my heart about a practice that we used to observe in church. I remember growing up in church, and, and it was a common occurrence, but we've kind of gotten away from it. It's the practice of coming to the altar and seeking the Lord. You know, we spend time praying for one another, we minister to one another, we call on the Lord for our needs. But we've kind of gotten away from just coming into the presence of the Lord to seek His face. And that's what I'm going to invite you to do today. In just a moment, Pastor Larry, come give me some stopping music because I could go for a while here. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us to stand and then I'm going to ask everyone in the building who's part of this service, I'm going to ask you to join me here at the front. Probably don't have room for all of us to kneel but we can come together. What I want to do in this is, this, this is a time to draw near to the Lord. Just pour out your heart to Him. Whatever's on your heart. We'll pray for you if you need prayer. But the most important thing that can happen right now is for you to make a God connection. And instead of asking for your laundry list of needs, just ask Him for more of who He is to be activated in your life. Press into His presence. Tarry in His presence. Seek His face. You know, a lot of times we've gotten this idea that the altar, which is what this is going to represent to us today, we think about the altar being the place of blessing. We come forward and we pray to get, to get our blessing, to get our needs met. There is some of that that happens. But if you look at the original idea of the altar, the altar is a place of sacrifice. Right. The altar is a place where we lay ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, it's not really what I'm looking for. It's not my will. It's not what I'm pursuing, it's, it's what do you want in my life? It's a place of surrender. So would you stand with me, please? And I'm just going to ask you to make your way to the front. And let's spend some time in prayer. Let's make this a house of prayer. Let's make this a time where we just seek the Lord. Lord, do something in my life today. If you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, that might be a great prayer, a great starting place for this prayer. Lord, fill me with your Spirit. I need to be baptized in your Spirit. I need the power of the Holy Spirit working in my life. But Lord, what would you have me to do? How do you want me to respond? How do you want me to behave? What, it, 
What is it in my life that you're looking for? Kind of move, move in a little bit, would you please, so the people in the aisle can, can get down. Thank you. Thank you for, for cooperating with this. Thanks for working with me today. I know we don't do this a lot. We haven't done this in a long time. And I'm not going to lead the prayer. This is time for you to pray. Talk to the Lord. Would you just take a few minutes and just seek the face of the Lord today? Let's do that. Draw me close to you. Never let me go. No one else will do Cause nothing else can take your place To feel the warmth of your embrace Help me find the way Bring me back to you. Here I pray this morning. You're all I want. Oh Lord, you're all I've ever needed. You're I've had my fill 